Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. So this is Louisa Wilcox, and welcome to the Grizzly Beat. And we're delighted to be here today with uh, Lynn Galebout, who is a long-term friend and a poet and a writer and an educator. She's also a biologist and a sidereal astrologer who has lived in the Grand Tetons for most of her life. She studied at the University of Utah and Naropa University, and she's worked with the Teton Science School for about 40 years, continuing to work with incoming graduate students and teachers. Lynn has a book of poems called Out of the Flames. She's, her writing has appeared in a number of anthologies, and she currently writes a weekly blog called Earth Sky Oracle. She shared her poetry and performed her poetry widely at venues such as the Teton Music Festival and the Buffalo Field Campaign. She's also the voice of Marty Murray's writings in the film Arctic Dance. Welcome, welcome, Lynn, to the show. Thank you, Louisa. Thanks so much for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lynn, <laughs> you've had a long and special relationship with wild animals and nature. And these topics saturate your poems as well. I think you could start off with a story from your early experience with a wild animal that perhaps shaped the direction that you took later. Oh, right. Um, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I basically grew up in sort of a wooded neighborhood at, at the base of Mount Olympus in Salt Lake City and really just grew up, I and mean, probably what I call back then were the urban wild because I would Alta was sort of my second home. We'd hike the trails of Wasatch Mountain, thanks to my parents. But in all honesty, it's when they would take us to Yellowstone, and the first time I did actually encounter a bear, and I have those kinds of pictures that many of us do from those days of the 60s where you actually have, we have pictures of us, you know, literally petting the bears and feeding them from our car, which, of course, is never allowed anymore. But back then... It was actually serious. So all I know is that it was that early period in Yellowstone on every level that ignited that that inner search. And then it wasn't really until I got older when I went out and, for instance, I was a timber marker in Idaho um, salmon wilderness for a long time, and that's when I first had face-to-face encounters with bears. And bears, I guess I'd say, obviously is my my basic wild animal that I, I seek out and, and have always had a relationship with. That's, that's great. I think we both share that sense of uh, bears as the center of our lives. So Absolutely. Then, and that's yeah. something you and I that go, again, our friendship and how long it's lasted and your role in my life, you know, in terms of your inspiration as a, uh, especially an activist leader has been huge. And so, you um, have many tales yourself, I know, <laughs> with those encounters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Lynn. So long ago, you developed kind of a personal practice that relied on immersion in nature and wilderness as a spiritual inspiration for your poems and your writings and your performances. Can you share a bit about what that practice means to you and 
how it started and how it may have changed over time. Um, you bet. Sure. That's, that comes again from that notion of, you know, who, who we innately are as children and, and how our early experiences, I think, really truly inform us in deepest ways that we learn later in life. And I do believe in, in general, I think we all have an essential nature that we are born with. And mine seems to be listener first. I, it was like always coming in and listening to nature, getting out at dawn to hear the birds. I, re, I have my first, I still have my first Audubon bird book with my, I long ago lost my little binoculars, but, um, you know, that idea mm-hmm. of listening in nature. And, and to me, that's the essence of poetry, which is why, why I consider, as a writer, I always feel like poetry is my first language. You know, I wish I could write great novels and fiction, but in general, I feel poetry is my go-to. And, and then specifically, I think my attunement has been is what I've described myself sometimes is as an earth listener. It's like I go out, I sit for hours at a time, as, as Walt Whitman would encourage us to do, to just sit and let the sounds accrue to us, as he says. And, and then the information arises and arrives. So this idea of sitting, waiting, being patient, which is not necessarily part of my nature, but I think this practice has allowed me to become more patient. And then I was always a journaler, so I was always writing things down after the listening aspect. Maybe you could uh, share a poem that perhaps drew on one of these experiences. Um, sure. I actually have a poem um, that's called The Vigor of Listening. And um, I actually wrote this poem Right after 9-11, it came to me. I was teaching up in the mm. Cody area. And so mm. this is a poem that, that also came out of that time period. It, I think I wrote this on September 16th. And um, this, and I've also taught a class called, it's the poem is called The Vigor of Listening. So I love this idea that listening isn't just passive. It's very vigorous. It's very alive. It's very, uh, it, it has its own power, right? So let me read, yeah. if I could, I'll read just, this has uh, seven different sections. I'm just going to read a few of these sections, kind of an excerpt, if I could. Yeah. <clears throat> and this is hopefully, I'm working on the second book of poetry called Earth is the Book, and this is one of the poems that will be in that book. Hmm. Hmm. So, the, the Vigor of Listening. Waylaid by beauty, I hover at the edge of language. My ears, a meadow, an open space for listening, a field for sensing. All answers lie within. The syntaxed slopes of earth are stories laid down in time. This lap of lake, paragraph of pond is sky on ground. In waiting, all is shown. My ears wriggle into dens of sleeping coyotes, beds of bears. My ears are paws a feeding frenzy, ingesting berries, delicious wisdom. My ear, a palm, holds captured secrets, what lichens teach, longevity. Through chartreuse claws and blood-orange passion, they say, be yourself, be yourself. The scent of sage sentences grow the air, no verbs, no words, just joy. So that's the vigor of listening. <laughs> wow. So the story's laid down in time. Yeah. In the earth, you know? All yeah, absolutely. That's, I've, 
I've always thought of geology that way, you know, like those layers. Yeah. I love to study geology too. And, um, or, you know, poems are, I once worked for this great thing from more of an artist, but he talked about how poems were just waiting there to be, they're waiting there. They're waiting to be grabbed. They're just like your poem is sitting there. And if you walk by, you'll be the person that grabs it. So that's another approach I've had to trying to find good poems. <laughs> like a, like a luscious fruit, just... Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if he was a musician, a famous musician. I'll have to track that quote down because it always stayed with me as part of my own process. Yeah. <laughs> so then we shared an experience uh, not too many months ago um, in Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, the land of your home, um, and uh, witnessed a tree signing by a number of different Indian tribes in the West uh, who were concerned about grizzly bears and the future of grizzly bears. And, and that tied into a dream that you had many years ago that helped shape uh, your vision and who you are today. Can you talk about this experience? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes, that was so powerful. And again, to share that moment with you, Louisa, and, uh, you know, it definitely makes me emotional thinking about the power of that day. Pardon me. <laughs> And um, yeah, and it it was so moving, to, wasn't it, to be with, to see that historic treaty being signed in this room in Jackson Lake Lodge, and the hours of storytelling, et cetera. And uh, again, I do want to honor you for you greatly facilitated that happening. So thank you for being part of creating that um, this whole uh, shift that's coming on every level. And, well, the uh, tribes really, the tribes really did that. Um, that was their doing. Yeah. But we're yes. all grateful for that. Exactly, and and that we are now in this pause uh, in the delisting process is huge and wonderful, and gives us uh, again time to listen and take a deep breath. So, yeah, um, in in 1983, um, I was actually part of a performance art team. Um, we were called the per- Headwaters Performing Arts Consortium, and you know this because we actually performed at one of the events of Greater Yellowstone Coalition when you were the director way back when, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and uh, we even got to one year we were hired by Yellowstone to come and work with their interpreters and sort of bring arts into the curriculum of interpretation, which, you know, so this was back in, you know, the early 80s, which is really fun. And so as I was preparing um, to write something for that, I I basically had a dream about this giant grizzly that came to me. It was like 25 feet tall. After the dream, I called it the Pleistocene bear because it was Uh. was just not an earthly bear. It wasn't an earthly Mm -hmm. bear. (laughs) And so... And basically, in that dream, it was this notion of I took dictation internally and then wrote about it from about guidance and inspiration from the from the element of bear. And it's like a door opened, excuse me, internally with with that dream. And um, over the years, I I have had what I will come to call many shamanic dreams about Mother Bear. And um, is what I came to know her as was Mother Bear. And so when I heard the tribes talk about the mother bear who was always their ancestral guide that came to them mm-hmm. and that is so tied to this question of what the water is life. It just gave me chills. And if I could read, there's this one small section that there's this poem I wrote. This is back from that period in 1983. It's called In a Bear Voice. 
And yeah. so the voice came to me, and here's what it said. It said, come away from the edge of your wall of belief, a fence of fire burning needlessly. Try, for our sake, to step away from your ancient fear and hear what we have to say. Mm. We've always shared the earth. We've always shared the earth. Here, first, long before you, saw sights you'll never see. Ask us of history. Ask us what we know of biology. That poem was from that period. Wow. Well, of course, the Native peoples had so many stories of their, their of the bears um, being their teacher and basically showing them what they could eat and what plants were good for medicine and uh, and they literally were teachers in in their in their worldview. That's Absolutely, yeah. And they, yeah, I remember, I remember learning. I remember learning because I was studying botany and. and in my biology degree, and um, and I remember learning about, you know, kind of both, just always researching this idea of the link between the herbal component. For instance, green gentian comes up first thing in the spring, and that's what the bears that often gorge themselves on, and it causes a purge in your body. So learning right. about, you know, the the plant, and then also its form, which is natural medicine, which is also something mother bear has has been the teacher of for sure. Mm-hmm. It's phenomenal how powerful the dream of the bear and the reality of the bear for tribal people has driven this unprecedented, you know, upwelling of concern about the Fish and Wildlife Service's proposed delisting and the hunt. Um, I've never seen anything like what uh, is going on uh, with tribal people um, who have really changed the political landscape, Uh, but it really ties into their root view of bears as relatives and as teachers. Mm -hmm. And and finally, oh my God, I think that's why that meeting for me was so emotional, Louisa, was still is, you know, is that link finally between the sacred and our politics. And any time I've, for instance, gone up and give, given testimony before the interagency grizzly bear um, gatherings, always I, you know, wanted to speak to that, that idea of the sacred with the bears. And, and I would, you know, and then you, sometimes you feel it falls on deaf ears and um, like, oh, there she goes again. But nonetheless, we show up and we speak our truth. And so when we see, and of course the true authority of that voice, it comes through the Native American people. So the fact that they will be listened to and are being listened to, and I really believe with this pause, more of that can come in. It's what just has happened with all the activism with Bears Ears. I mean, it did manifest. What a gift, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it's it's a turning point, absolutely. I feel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that they have the potential to introduce into the political debate um, a sense of spirituality and sacredness that is, is absolutely missing in having absolutely. gone to so many meetings over the years. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know. Yep. I think every well, at some level, I think everybody's hungry for that. It's not where many people are hungry for that, even in the political process, and they and it's trying to find a way to language that. How do we honor that while still being, you know, scientists or, you know, right. uh, what do you um, agency people? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, they have a tough job. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's a and it's a trick uh, navigating relationships with bears that many people have. In fact, the primary relationships bears with bears are not scientific for most people. They're in the realm of, of spiritual, if you will, or or related to the beauty of, of an experience. And and I think agency yeah. people really don't have much background um, with the time to in terms of orienting to people who have this very different connection that isn't science for, for most of us. Mm-hmm. So but I think I think the, well, the tribes are Go ahead. Well, no, that's interesting because when I talk about that idea that it, it sort of it was fun to be at the beginning of that idea of even bringing arts into the park way back right. when. You know, I've had yeah. this thought well, maybe maybe our next step is to bring that more spiritual component into even the park service. And that will come through the individuals who are in the park, you know, but maybe they would bring in people that would say, or, you know, just, and I've worked, as I said, I've worked with science school for all these years, so noticing that, you know, it's okay now to, when you take kids out in the woods to say, let's take a moment of silence. I swear that wouldn't have been okay um, way back in the day. <laughs> you know? Right. So that's right. a shift in our consciousness that I think is wonderful and uh, um, is, you know, we need to model more of that so it becomes safer for people to do that. Right. But speaking of the shift in consciousness, um, it seems to me that some of these celebrity bears that live by the roadsides in Jackson and, and uh, Yellowstone Park have really been, have really sparked the change because people can see them now in a way that you couldn't uh, 25 years ago by the roads. And you had a special, have had a really special experience with uh, a very famous bear, the Matriarch 399, uh, who was first spotted in the Jackson Hole Valley somewhere in the early 2000s. And maybe you could talk about your experience with her, watching her raise her cubs and and um, including last summer um, when she had a new cub out with her. What did 399 and, and the bears in her family teach you? Oh, endless joy. <laughs> mm. And... Um, reverence and just gratitude for one thing. But, um, yeah, I feel very fortunate, along with many of us who lived through, especially those early years of the 2000s. Um, I really started watching her around 2006, 2007, and that's when I, I, would, I became absolutely addicted. I would go up as often as I could. I would um, hang out with the you know, 10 or up to 20 different people. But not that many of us were out there all the time watching him. And remember, there was no wildlife brigade yet. Um, they were mainly right. photographers. Everybody, I think, was respectful. Yes, there was a sense of sometimes getting too close. And so what I observed was absolutely how the bears were teaching us respect. I mean, um, 399 mm. is because she is to me the great matriarch and she has that calmness about her versus her daughter 610 who is another favorite bear of mine but is very fiery bluff charges people i was bluff charged by hers once from a safe distance but you know they had a different style of teaching us like hey you know you're Mm -hmm. getting too close and then and then a lot of that had to change when all of a sudden it's as if they became more famous and and I want to tell a story about my favorite ranger, Chris Flaherty, who's been there for years. You know Chris, sure. right? Yeah, so Chris. No, I don't. I mean, no. <laughs> Chris, um, I talked, we're always chatting on the side of the road, and 
he has mm-hmm. so many great stories because if, as far as I understand, and this, you might want to follow up this up with Chris, but this came out of a conversation I had last year. He was, he was there basically when she came out as an orphaned cub, and I, if I, 399, if I remember, it was 2003. So mm. he, he, I really consider, you know, he was the one that kind of looked after her, kept her safe, and Chris mm-hmm. was, in a sense, when it became kind of crazy, he, you know, together they initiated the idea of the Wildlife Brigade. But one story he did tell me, which I thought was fascinating, is that when she was when 399 was first collared and weighed and trapped, she actually weighed 399 pounds. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And that wasn't why she got that number, but she, um, that was a fun story to hear. So, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, so I just think she's educating her cubs how to be around us. But I swear I saw her learn the 150-yard rule because she sort of knew exactly when she got too close. She would, I, She watched everybody freak out, especially, you know, certain people that would freak out, um, not like me. I wish she would get closer, <laughs> but many mm-hmm. people would be like, uh-oh, you know, bring out those horns and whatever, and then, and then she would step back. And so I really feel, of course, and know she's so wise, and she is as much a teacher to us, um, and, and I, I am in forever indebted to her as um, being able, wanting, you know, being a roadside bear. Now, I know that term is controversial, and it, I kind of consider it, it's more those bears that are more visible. And, uh-huh. yes, there's science that says, well, they stay near the road because their cubs feel more safe, and that probably all of that is true. And at the same time, I, I have this feeling, I've been writing about this, that it's as if 399 is the earthly incarnation of that of that ancient mother bear. She just carries mm. that energy. Um, when they did, they mistake, well, they say mis- they mistakenly trapped her this year again. She is very healthy. She has the teeth of a bear that's like 10 or 15 years younger. I mean, she's an amazing mm. bear. And I don't wow. know, you know, I don't know if we'll have this kind of um, connection after these particular tribe of bears leave because it's almost like it was an age of learning. So that will be interesting to see what happens in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And she's getting old now, sort of toward the end of certainly her reproductive years at the age of 20, which is a very, very old bear. um, Yeah. And yet she's in, you know, maybe she just, I don't know what she'll do, right? I mean, you're more on top of that. You, you probably, you and Dave probably know a lot of that science more than I do. But that was interesting to learn that <clears throat> she's still got a lot of years in her. It sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we would just uh, keep the respect, respectful behavior yeah. going, and the like. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, Lynn, um, shifting gears into another major love of your life, um, you've been an astrologer for many years, as long as I've known you, I think. How has your work in that field uh, changed your perspective? Um, let's see. I, I kind of came to that I'm totally out of the blue. I never, ever in my life imagined I would even be an astrologer, and it is one of the ways I make a living. So... I think being that listener I spoke about, and I've always had a lifelong love of astronomy, you know, as much as the earth, I love staring at the planets, learning about Mm -hmm. them. Um, In many places I've lived in Wyoming, I had to ski in in the middle of the night and be guided by the stars, literally. So, you know, Mm -hmm. just the beauty of of the universe. And when I had my chart read when I was young, 
or mm. younger, are still in college. The information was so startling and true and shocking that I, I just began a self-study. And so I continue to um, work with that. And I'm, I'm a sidereal astrologer, which means real star time. So I work with the true galactic alignments over time. I also love mm-hmm. to write about political astrology because I think when you analyze, for instance, the charts of certain people, you see, again, the overall trend of of a person's soul, nothing set in stone. The planets don't cause things to happen. It's just a mirror. So it, and, and that's why when I created my website or my, my blog, I call it Earthward, which is really my mm-hmm. poetry and writing, and then Skyward, which is my, more my astrology um, and sharing that. And then, again, the linking, the linking of the two is important to me. Right. Well, of course, in the sky um, at night, you can often see the grizzly, the Great Bear constellation, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, and uh, of course, its connection to the North Star. And uh, that constellation has always had a special meaning for you. And maybe you could explain why. Yeah, and um, again, that may happen before I ever studied astrology. I was just like, there it is, the Great Bear, you know. And that was obviously I love Ursa Major because especially Ursa Major, because it is the great bear. But it also, as you study it from the storied perspective of astrology, it's all about the right use of power. So it is actually associated with either um, trying to overpower people and control them from the outside using, like, external force. And it was, if you go back in astronomy and study it, it was um, during a certain period of time, it was sort of our ruling com- uh, constellation, and that would be back in the day when there was brute force and empires and just a tremendous use of warfare and force. But it also symbolizes to be empowered from within, which is, again, to me, mm. when Great Bear comes to us, it's about knowing your power from within, knowing mm-hmm. your inner power and your gifts. And so that's, to me this difference between power versus force. You know, are you someone who comes from your inner power, you trust that, you're calm with that, or is it trying to work from this old way of of forcing things? And um, I think personally that's one of the reasons that grizzlies in particular evoke this sense of either unwarranted fear, and and Mm -hmm. yes, you have to be respectful and keep your distance, but there's such unwarranted fear, which certainly I... Whenever I'm out there and talking to people, I try and talk them down from their fear. And then also the extraordinary respect, because I do think grizzlies can actually help us heal our fears. And that's what my grizzly bear dreams over the years have been. They've always been about, they sort of come when I'm dealing with a fear that needs to be addressed and cleared, and then coming back into a place of trust and love. So clearing fear and coming back into love. And also, you know, knowing your power and not having to overpower somebody, you know, being confident that speak your truth, stand your ground, and then let it go and let it be heard. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I yeah. put it all together. Right. Well, you certainly see um, fear and uh, the need to control uh, color a lot of uh, Oh, grizzly bear management um, in the present time. I think it's changing, but certainly this this need to dominate um, these wild animals has been, you know, at the root of yeah. a lot of of how we handle bears. And and 
Maybe, maybe we yeah. could just shift briefly into one, the story of one of 399's descendants, um, a mm-hmm. bear uh, with the number of 760. And that bear was moved a couple of years ago from Jackson, where he had been born and raised and lived, to the Cody area, where it was killed by a Wyoming Game and Fish, Commission, uh, fish official, um, even though it had not really committed the kind of sin that typically uh, results in bear managers killing them, such as attacking somebody or, or yeah. know, damaging you know, livestock. Maybe you could talk about yep. what 760 meant to you, and then we can talk about maybe a little bit of the management side of things. <clears throat> yeah, his um, his was a great sacrifice. So sad. Um, so he was one of six ten sons, and um, you know again got to hang around him and watch him through different phases. Um, he was he was just a great. He was very playful. He was not a troublesome bear. He and he loved to roam. You know he loved to. He was a real roamer, especially once he got kicked out of the nest. So he would mm-hmm. roam, you know, all the way up to Yellowstone. He and then he got into trouble. He roamed all the way down to Wilson, and I believe was collared or caught twice. So the mm-hmm. third time, the fact that it happened in the late fall, and he was not given a chance to be relocated back to Grassy Lake, where he most likely would have just gone into hibernation. You know, right. time of year and everything. It was such a tragedy, and it just sparked so many of us, including my dear friend Cindy Campbell, who that next day started the um, 760 Facebook page, which really has gathered community and activated community uh, from, around the, from around the world. <laughs> and um, she and I met with, um, we felt just obligated to go and meet with uh, Wyoming Game and Fish, and we met with them a couple times just to share our views about the mistake in management, at the same time trying to listen to understanding their decision-making process. Because, as you said, Louise, I don't feel it's, you know, I at some level I understand where when you're in an agency, this whole idea of protecting the humans is always seems to be number one or hunting. So just to go in and talk to them about that, and it was the first conversation especially was long, and it was a very good conversation, and I want to continue that with certain members in that community. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, then Cindy and I, we uh, created a memorial service in the spring after he was killed, and that right. was very powerful as well, including the people that showed up from the park. It was very moving. People that mm-hmm. really surprised me, actually. One of the wildlife or gay people I didn't imagine would come, and he was just, it was very moving. And it was there again, you know, honoring the sacred of the bear. The same right. space that bear held. Right. You can share, uh, maybe, maybe Lynn, you could share a poem that you read at the memorial um, in Grand Teton Park last year. Um, I would love to because this is my, um, thank you, I'd love to, this is the poem for uh, the Grand Teton Grizzlies and it's, it's the whole poem about Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. So I actually wrote this way before 760, but then I read this at the memorial and we created, Cindy created this beautiful memorial card, once again, art is activism and honoring. Um, And our friend Michelle McCormick donated her time to create this beautiful piece of art that literally has gone around the world. So this poem is called Seven Stars for Seven Bears, a praise poem for Teton Grizzlies. And again, my apologies in advance, probably 
cry. You know me, I'm a crier, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I get so emotional. Okay, so hopefully I'll get through this book. Okay, so seven stars for seven bears. <clears throat> Our bears are numbered 610 and 399, a daughter and her mother, five cubs in tow combined. We've watched them trade one cub, traveling between two moms. Sometimes it seems all seven are functioning as one. Hmm. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, seven stars in each heavenly bear. Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, Great Bear and Little Bear. Celestial bears, earthly bears, mirror one another. Emissaries, visionaries, how do we live amongst each other? We are blessed by bear ambassadors. Fierce love and protection inhabits their souls. Grizzly mothers, bear mothers, in honoring them, we become more whole. Our bears stays numbered indeed if we ignore their needs. Vast room to roam free, hundreds of miles to move unseen. Our bears are numbered, so indeed we must hold strong guarding the wildness of territory, more land. That's what keeps them from harm. These seven bears are our seven stars. Thankfully, they guide our hearts. Wow. I wish I'd been there at your memorial. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So then you you mentioned a moment ago um, that art you is a form of activism and that we all have a responsibility to play some kind of role in, uh, in making this world a better place for nature and ourselves. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what you mean by art as activism. Um, you know, the, the idea of creativity and, um, so when I say art, it, at some level, you know, maybe I should even say, be clear more, say more creativity, because I consider scientists some of the most creative people I know, especially when they're willing to think outside the box and, you know, really be creative with interpreting the data, for instance, or mm-hmm. a chef who's creating something. So this idea of using your creativity, your talents, whatever they are, and you know, being on, getting on board with what you love and care about. And I, I just personally have no doubt that the whole essence of um, activism is moving toward, thanks to social media, uh, that people can get more active in their creativity and influence change, and it takes time. So it's sort of like this process of educating people, not just fighting them, but putting out something that's new and um, inspirational, not just not just fighting and attacking. So inspiring people, getting them excited to love bears. You know, I'll never forget one time I was standing at the top of Dunraven Pass, <laughs> and we were watching one of their great roadside grizzlies. And this biker from the Midwest pulls up, and he's watching the bear. I, I land in my binox, and at the end of it, he goes. Don't you just feel more wild watching that bear? I just feel like I'm wild when I watch that bear. I just love that bear. And 
it was like that moment just he got it, you know. I have no doubt he went back and became an activist somehow uh-huh. <laughs> just by that contact. So um, so using that, you know, as um, as a form to to um, to create change. And then I, I would love to tie it in with the incredible speech President Obama gave it as his final speech the other night. Oh, yeah. His his quote, which was the most important office in a democracy, citizen. So that's that's where we're going now. You know, taking that role and that um, power we have as individuals to um, inspire change. You know, out of what we love. Right. Well, certainly Obama uh, drove that point home the other night, and and actually through through his presidency. Uh, and this maybe gets. Maybe we can shift gears a little bit because you've been a, a political player and an activist for for as long as I've known you, and it's I've always been kind of curious about how you see politics as a mirror that reflects what's happening in the stars and the sky. Um, maybe you can share your thoughts on that and uh, and share an example or two. Um, <clears throat> well, I. In all honesty, I feel like I'm, I'm not, I wish, sometimes I wish I was more out in the streets, you know, and, and running a non, I mean, I thought I might be running a nonprofit at some point, you know, but then I think coming back to that idea of what is your essential nature, what is it you love to do, what do you, how do you want to interact with this? And so one thing I've discovered is that through astrology, I really can write about politics and, and people Yes, some people get pissed. I, I just wrote a whole piece on the chart of the incoming um, president-elect, and um, I, you know, I laid it out as I saw it. And um, I think that information can be valuable for people. And yes, I have a lens through which I see, and I am going to write as my final tribute for President Obama. I'm going to write about his chart on, and publish it on January 20th because. Mm. He has been, as I call him, the educator-in-chief. So I think that um, the that my form of activism is also changing right now for all of us. I mean, ever I have just been in a deep internal space since November, just going, what what's next? You know, what do I do mm-hmm. next personally? What do we do next? But also because of that what is my role and how can I assist, you know? And so when he talked about that as citizen, and, you know, I just think these are revolutionary times and we're coming into a a time when there's going to be, in my opinion, a, a chaotic, alarming lack of leadership from the top. So we will all be finding our new power and voices and gift. And that'll be exciting and that'll be a beautiful thing that comes about in the next um, years um, to walk our talk at a higher level of integ- personal integrity, to model that, to mirror that. And that, in general, to me, is what, for the most part, President Obama mirrored was this idea of going to a, uh, taking ourselves to a higher plane, you know, becoming more compassionate, becoming more inclusive, protecting the great earth. And my, my primary focus will always be the earth. It just is. And help maybe this idea of how do you help the humans evolve at a more rapid pace? <laughs> right. You know, because I believe, I really place my ultimate faith in the earth and the heavens. And it's, we're going forward. The, the track of the universe is pro- progress. And one thing I like to remind people is 
Planetary motion is two steps forward, one step back. It retrogrades. Planets go forward certain degrees, and then it actually retrogrades. So that retrograde period, what you want to do when that happens is integrate and reform. And, you know, once I saw that, it, it's what allows me sometimes to have faith and trust that going retrograde, going back over things, revisiting, revamping, so that when the next hit of the progressive movement comes, you know, we're really ready. And so um, hmm. that's, that's the way I deal with my sadness and grief and upset on certain days. <laughs> right. But um, I, I do, I just believe in all of us. I mean, we, our community is so powerful, I, uh, you know, so it's just time to get more active and activated. Right. And certainly there's an urgency with uh, how rapidly we're changing the climate to, you know, radically um, change the ability of this planet to be inhabited by people, let alone, you know, wildlife and nature. So there is mm-hmm. a sense of urgency to move forward, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So as you look forward to this, you know, new trajectory and uh, new political climate that we're in, what's the role of bear power in all of that? Mm. Um, again, um, bear to me is the love of power or the power of love. Mm. And so I think, um, you know, sometimes I, I have this, maybe I'll turn this into a book because it'd be a fun kid's book. I get this feeling like when I watch 399, yeah, maybe she is a little tired of, raising batches of triplets all the time. And then after, there is no doubt the loss she faced with Snowy was just, you could, you know, we experienced her heartbreak. We got to watch her return those two days after. And, um, you know, so this sense of even her, like, is she, is she, is she going to become the philosopher bear, you know, and, and she's going to be teaching us new things and maybe she'll be coming more to us in our dreams and maybe more people will be having these dreams. But bear power is, is so much about that knowing your inner strength. You know, it's not, it's not wolf, which is very tribal and communal. It's very knowing, knowing your inner power and protecting what you love. That's what bear mm. is. Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Lynn, this has been a great conversation. Uh, We're here today with Lynn Gale about and the Grizzly Beat. Uh, Thank you, Lynn, so much. 